This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I think of blacklishers that it's gross and don't put it on any of your candies. I have some licorice gums in the cupboard now. I've always liked it. Ever since I first tasted the licorice all sort when I was six. Black licorice is disgusting. Red licorice is good. I'm a fan in moderation. Childhood trauma because my mom really liked licorice and I just couldn't stand it. And she gave me the salted one, which is the most horrible one ever. I think my views have changed now a bit. In Italy, it's usually eaten in kind of gummy um, candies. It's kind of fun and pleasant taste and your blood pressure gets high a bit, so that's a fun feeling, usually. Uh, and it is a Marmite product. You do love it or hate it. And um, I really like Marmite and really like licorice. I'm on the love side. I was always that kid who was happy to take anyone's discarded black jelly beans. Weirdly, I don't actually have strong feelings about licorice. It's fine. It's not my deathbed choice, but I'll eat it. But this episode of Gastropod, we're going to do more than just eat licorice, though we will also be eating some of the strangest, saltiest versions I've ever tried. Yes, this is Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. In this episode, we will get to the bottom of the very important question. Why is licorice so polarizing? Why do most people either love it or hate it? Not to mention an even more important question. What the heck is licorice? Does it grow on trees? Where does this curious black substance come from? And to get curiouser and curiouser, why does everyone in Nordic countries add salt to their licorice? What's that all about? Finally, for those of you who do love licorice, is there such a thing as too much? In fact, the short answer is yes, because it turns out there actually is such a thing as licorice poisoning. Another way to die that I'd never even thought to worry about. But first, if you're listening to this episode hot off the presses, it's your last chance to apply for our summer fellowship. The deadline is March 17th. It's a paid part-time opportunity working remotely. All the details and how to apply are at gastropod.com fellow. We grow asparagus, rhubarb, strawberries, pumpkins, raspberries, blackberries, gooseberries, grass for the lambs and sheep that we farm, pigs. Heather Copley is the managing director of Farmer Copley's in Yorkshire in the north of England. The farm spreads out over about 110 acres. It used to be a dairy farm, but the cows were sold off. And then Heather and her husband, Robert, took over their family farm. And a few years ago, Heather decided she wanted to add some licorice to the mix. Yep. 
Turns out there is such a thing as a licorice plant. Somebody just came across that I've got some licorice plants, a local person, and they, they were left from an original licorice garth, which is what you call a, a planting of licorice. It's, it's called a garth. Uh, they had some left, probably about 80 plants or so in their back garden, and they were wanting to develop their back garden. So basically, we picked them up at the end of the year, just like the, the roots. They just looked like dried up roots and brought them back and planted them here. in in what was really quite close to the car park at that stage. Then my brother-in-law managed to dig them up when he was excavating the car park. Somebody went too far. Fortunately, the licorice survived. No word on the brother-in-law. Heather moved it to a safer location, but the challenges were not over. Uh, The only other mishap we had, which um, we didn't have a, a clue about, and it's not documented anywhere, we've discovered ourselves that rabbits love licorice root. So they would come in in the spring and they'd keep digging it up and chewing the bottom of the licorice root. So that's a a new one. So we do have to electric fence it to keep the rabbits out. Smart rabbits, the roots are what we particularly love too. It usually takes about five years for those licorice roots to grow big enough for a first harvest. So after five years, Heather decided to check it out and see how their licorice was doing. So we dug a little trench and found a licorice root, which is ever so exciting because I'd never actually seen a, a proper licorice root. And we were able to eat it. Um, literally from the field. And it was quite translucent in color at that stage. And when we actually ate it, it was almost like a a very clear honey type sap that came out of it. And it was super, super sweet, but really strong of the sort of more of an aniseed flavor than you would have with the licorice all sort type sweet. And although it is sweet, it's a different sweet, more like a honey sweet as opposed to a sugar sweet. This does not sound at all like the kind of licorice I'm used to, the squidgy black stuff you buy in a pick and mix. But the other thing that's sort of confusing is what is licorice doing growing in Yorkshire? You can buy licorice in England, I know that from when I was a kid, but growing it there? It grows in hot countries. At the present day, we get our licorice from Turkey, Iran, Iraq, It grows in Mediterranean countries. It grows in Italy, India, Syria, China, Southern Europe. Carol Wilson is a food writer who's written a lot of books, including one called Licorice, a Cookbook. And Yorkshire is not a hot country. I went to university there, and I swear I didn't take off my jumper for three years. You can keep your sweater on because we will be heading back to Yorkshire. But Carol says in the wild and hot countries, licorice is a shrub that grows like a weed. But today, when it's cultivated, it's cultivated mainly for its roots, although all the parts of the plant can actually be eaten. You can eat the shoots, you can use the leaves to make a tea, but it's the roots that are the most most important part. And those roots have been grown and harvested by humans going all the way back to ancient history. The earliest mention of licorice is on an Assyrian clay tablet from the 7th century BCE. Licorice has been in use for thousands of years. Uh, But its main use was as a medicine. Carol says it was thought to strengthen the immune system and it was used as a remedy for coughs and colds. Licorice is also mentioned in the oldest Chinese book of spices as one of 120 first-class remedies with divine powers of healing. A species of licorice is native to North America, too, and indigenous groups here drank it for problems with childbirth and for upset stomachs. It was good for everything. Asthma, scabies, gout, and wound healing 
when mixed with honey. Michael Lee is a former doctor and professor of clinical pharmacology at Edinburgh University. Carol and Michael say that licorice shows up all over in the ancient world once you start looking for it. A large quantity of licorice was actually found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, who ruled Egypt about 1350 BCE. In fact, Alexander the Great instructed his troops to take some licorice root with them to chew, to reduce their thirst when water was scarce and to give them strength during their long marches. And Alexander the Great wasn't the first to try out that thirst-reducing trick. One of the earliest references is by a Greek historian called Herodotus, and he went to live with the Scythians. And when he lived with the Scythians, he discovered they were using licorice to suppress thirst, and they used to mix it with mare's milk in order to provide a food on their long journeys on horseback. Michael says licorice would have had a practical benefit in this case, and in other medical situations too. Well, it has a number of properties. It's anti-inflammatory, tends to damp down inflammation, but more particularly, it can affect sodium and water metabolism in the body. In fact, licorice specifically triggers water retention, which can be dangerous but could be handy on a long, thirsty march. Another reason licorice might have helped when marauding armies were feeling a little thirsty is that it has a lovely throat-soothing property. It's a nice demulsant, what we call a demulsant. It coats the pharynx and larynx and suppresses cough, and is still used in cough mixtures bought over the counter. Julius Caesar was another licorice devotee who made sure the Roman legion always had licorice in their rations. And Carol says it's still being used this way today, at least by camels. Arabs on the camel trains across uh, the desert will give their camels licorice to stop them from becoming thirsty. All that licorice being carried on all those long journeys, luckily it also tasted good too. Oh yes. It was recognized as being sweet root. That's where the name licorice comes from. Glycorrhiza means sweet root in ancient Greek. If you say it fast enough, enough times, glycorrhiza becomes licorice, the sweet root. And before the days of the sugar cane, it was widely used as a sweetener in confectionery drinks and so on. As Heather noticed when she tasted the licorice root fresh out of the ground on her farm, licorice is much sweeter than sugar. Some say 50 times sweeter, some say 150 times. And licorice is in fact the very oldest branded candy in England, and it was invented in the town right next to Heather's farm. But as we said, licorice plants aren't native to England, so how did licorice end up there? The classical story is that of the Crusades. The Crusades, as you know, for two or three hundred years, went to the Holy Land. And while they were there, they discovered that the Muslims were using licorice as a sweet condiment and also for certain disorders like asthma. Some of these crusaders were monks and they brought this licorice plant back with them to grow in their monastery herb gardens. And then they had monasteries all over Europe and one of them was in Pontefract in West Yorkshire, England. The monks actually grew licorice in a few different places in England, but it turned out that their Pontefract monastery was the very best for the plant. It's all about soil type. If you haven't got the right soil type, it won't grow. It needs really free-draining sandy soil, which is what we have on the farm. because The roots will go down about four feet 
and about 20, they're spread about 25 feet across once they're properly established. The plant grows a little more slowly in England than in the Mediterranean. There's not actually a ton of sunshine in Yorkshire. But the cloudy cold weather also ends up having a silver lining because the licorice plants don't flower and so they put all their energy into growing their roots instead. But in any case, licorice plants did grow really well for the monks. So well that they kept the knowledge of how to grow their new cash crop a secret from the local community. Then Henry VIII's first wife couldn't produce an heir and he fancied divorcing her and marrying Anne Boleyn instead. And to do that, he had to break with Catholicism and close all the Catholic monasteries. When Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, all of the secrets and the lands of the monasteries were overtaken and the fields growing licorice fell into the hands of the local farmers. And after the farmers enthusiastically took over all those licorice fields, they still kept some secrets. The borough of Pontefract made it illegal for anyone to sell a licorice plant outside town. The punishment was a fine of two shillings and sixpence and a lifetime ban on growing licorice. Pontefract was serious about its licorice. Pontefract became the centre of a licorice industry. And by 1750, there were 47 licorice farmers in Pontefract. People talk about every field, you know, just being full of these licorice garths. And when I say garth, it's a bit like if you imagine a vineyard, you know, where you've got like the rows going down. That's how a licorice garth would grow together. So the bushes would all come up and they'd be... In, in these lovely rows all through Pontefract area. When it came to harvest time, the whole town pitched in. Entire families would go out together. To harvest it, you would dig a trench on uh, one side one year and cut the, the roots, and then you backfill that in, and then the following year you dig a trench on the opposite side. And you can just keep going. As far as I'm aware, I don't think it's a crop that would ever stop producing because uh, it's quite a, a strange... Crop. I, I was an agronomist for donkey's years, growing plants and advising farmers all over the south of England. I've never seen anything grow like or be harvested in the way that licorice is, with uh, digging a trench one side and then the next year uh, digging it the other side and literally pruning it by by hand. The village families would dig up the roots and dry them. Then they'd soak those dried roots in hot water, wring them out in the same type of contraption they used to wring out clothes, and then they'd boil the syrup. Along the way, the licorice turned dark brown or black. So that licorice syrup was basically the same color we're used to today. But the syrup was largely destined for one of dozens of medical uses. When did licorice become a candy? This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. 
But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The person we have to thank for that was a chemist from Pontefract called George Dunhill. A chemist in British English is actually a pharmacist. Confusingly, a chemist is also a scientist who studies chemistry, but George Dunhill was definitely a pharmacist. All the chemists, the pharmacies, they all sold licorice because the weather was very wet and foggy and damp in winter, and a lot of people developed coughs and chest problems. And of course, Yorkshire was a centre for coal mining, so a lot of the miners, when they worked down the dusty mines, would take the licorice tablets to ease their chests and their coughs and to help their breathing. But George Dunhill in 1760 decided to add sugar, molasses and flour to the mixture. And he rolled this thick mixture into rounds and sold it in his chemist shop. This was in 1760 as medicinal pastels for coughs and colds. But these sweet Pontefract cakes were so popular that people bought them just to eat for pleasure rather than as a medicine. And thus, the very first British commercial candy was born, the Pontefract cake. And the town was turned into an entire Pontefract cake town. Well, it was so important that uh, 60% of the women and 30% of the men were working in Pontefract factories. And by about 1840... Cultivation had soared with hundreds of tons being produced in Pontefract every week because the British do have a very sweet tooth. And I was actually born born in Yorkshire <laughs> and uh, we love our licorice in Yorkshire. And so things continued on their merry way until World War II when lots of the licorice factories were requisitioned to make more important things like parachutes. And then, of course, sweets were rationed and Pontefract was heavily bombed and everything changed. The industry never really came back. Farmers gave up farming licorice, and the route now has to be imported. Nearly all the factories closed. There are just a couple Pontefract cake factories left. Even though Heather has restarted the tradition of growing licorice in Pontefract again, she doesn't grow nearly enough to supply the local factories. So many people want to buy it off of us, but we just don't have those volumes. So we will just be doing it as an experience and an educational tool to teach people about where licorice is from, from a historic viewpoint. And our customers can't wait. There are still people around who remember when it was growing in town. It wasn't that long ago. Because it's so much a part of the town's heritage, Heather buys in dried licorice root from overseas to sell in her farm shop. And you see these these older customers coming in with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, buying them these little sticks of dried up root, telling the children to to chew on this. This is what they had when they were children as sweets. Um, you can imagine the look on most of the children's faces. They were, were less than impressed. To be honest, when Heather tried it, she also wasn't a huge fan. Okay, so a dried licorice root really isn't that exciting. Uh, very woody, 
very chewy and it, you have to really, really chew it for an awfully long time to actually get the, the sap, if you imagine if it's dried up, to get the sap to come out. Heather says the fresh root is altogether a different experience and she's shared some of her limited supply of fresh or wet licorice, as it's called, with her older customers. Yeah, we have done to certain customers, you know, like ones that really go on about it. But this year, this September, we're hoping to do a proper sort of licorice experience and let people come over. We'll dig the trench. They can help harvest some of the roots and they'll be able to have it in the field. Even when her harvest is ready for customers, the haul will still be quite small. Heather's hoping to enlist other local farmers in bringing licorice back to Pontefract. Most of them think we're absolutely bonkers and there's a reason that it doesn't grow in this area anymore commercially. But once we start to get um, hopefully a bigger demand, we might be able to get some local people involved in growing some for us. You wouldn't need it masses, but it's that establishment phase. You know, you've got seven years of um, no return on investment, really. So so that's the difficult element to it. Leaving aside the question of growing licorice in England, the Pontefract cake itself is a relatively rare phenomenon these days. Even though I grew up in England and I used to save up my pocket money for licorice all sorts and licorice pipes, I'd never tried a Pontefract cake. I'd never even seen one. And they're quite hard to track down. None of the shops or supermarkets I went to in London had them. Fortunately, my mum found a packet in the local Waitrose in the town where I grew up. There's not a lot of strong licorice flavor there. I was literally about to say that. I get much more of the like treacle molasses and just like a hint of licorice. Not much anise flavor. There's more in the aftertaste. Like now, now I've swallowed it. It's a little bit licorice-y. But, but not really. Kind of surprisingly. I mean, it's delicious. Yeah, I like it. It's like dark caramelized molasses chew. A strangely addictive dark caramelized molasses chew. I ended up snarfing the packet. Pontefract cakes are great, but they really don't taste like American licorice does. There isn't all that much of an anise flavor. Why are they so different from what I think of as licorice? To answer that question, we called Beth Kimmerly. She works as a consultant to lots of candy companies, and she's written a book called Candy, the Sweet History. We asked Beth to describe the flavors she picks up on in pure licorice. You're first going to get sweet. And people like to say the sweet is almost comes at the same time as a really earthy taste. Some people describe it as sort of barky, earthy. And that's what the Pontefract cakes taste like. They're kind of earthy and sweet. That's not really the same flavor notes that you get in American candies like Good and Plenty or the Black Jelly Beans. And the reason for that is that Good and Plenty and Black Jelly Beans are also flavored with anise, which to me is a really different and distinctive flavor. I can't describe it other than saying American licorice tastes like anise and licorice all sorts and Pontefract cakes don't. Licorice roots do have a compound that's also present in aniseed and in fennel, things that taste stereotypically anisey, but it's not the main flavor note in dried and boiled licorice root. They're close cousins, which is why you see anise oftentimes in licorice, just sort of, I want to say, you know, the, it functions twofold, I think it kind of mellows out some of that earthiness. And it seems like it adds back some of the anise notes that Heather noticed in the raw licorice root, the ones that probably get lost when the molasses notes get so strong when the extract of the roots is boiled. And for whatever reason, here in America, a lot of anise is added. So if you think you don't like licorice, it might be that you just don't like the anise flavor in American licorice, and you should try a Pontefract cake. I decided to try this out on my eight-year-old niece, Ayla, who said she hated black licorice. You heard her at the beginning of the show. Okay, so you don't... eat this stuff? Yeah, I think it's delicious. Okay, let me try that. Okay, take a little bite. 
Hey, it's actually kind of good. Tastes like prunes. As long as you don't eat too much of it at a time, it kind of tastes good. Why, thank you, Ayla. Britain's oldest sweet salutes you. Ayla also said that she loves red licorice, and she's not alone in that. A lot of licorice haters will make an exception for the red variety. So what's that? Is red licorice the same as black licorice, but the color just makes it seem tastier? No, it's not the same, I'm afraid. (laughs) Um, It doesn't actually contain any licorice. So if it's not licorice, why do we call it red licorice? I think one of the things about licorice early on is they realized, okay, so black licorice is polarizing. How can we get more people to eat licorice? Oh, that's it. You know, we offer a cherry version or a strawberry version or whatever that red is flavored. I think it's some sort of like mixed indistinguishable fruit flavor. And so I think that was their effort, right, to appeal to a wider audience. And so it stuck, right? So in the US, it's still called licorice. Is it right or is it wrong? I think it's kind of wrong, but it also just kind of is. But even within the ranks of red licorice lovers, there are strong feelings about the right and wrong kind of red licorice. You know, there's a huge fight between Twizzlers and Red Vine. It's like an East versus West Coast thing. I think like if you if you had a throwdown about one thing, like that would be juicy material. Here's my view on this juicy smackdown. Neither red vines nor Twizzlers are good. They taste like wax. Don't email us about this, we're right. But even though I loved licorice as a kid, black licorice, the stuff that actually had taste, I was in the minority. There are just fewer of us here in the U.S. One of the things that's pretty clear is that our European friends, just they celebrate licorice in a different way. And they're really, you know, they're very serious about it. One of the reasons for that is because European licorice confections, like Pontefract cakes, they date back to a time when sugar was still pretty rare and expensive. And so there wasn't a lot of competition in the confectionery market. And for for us, we kind of came to it a little bit later, and it was already sort of a novelty and and flavored differently. The Europeans who showed up in America did bring their licorice with them. Experts think the very first branded candy in America was good and plenty, which is licorice. But that was in the late 1800s, and we already had access to a lot of sugar. And so quite quickly, licorice was just one of the many candy flavors available. But also, Beth told us that glycorrhizin, the compound that makes licorice licorice, has a really long-lasting and intense flavor note. Which is why they're perfect as breath mints and people use them medicinally is because they really mask a lot of other flavors. And that's because the intensity of these really strong flavors lasts a long time. I think that's actually one of the reasons that makes it really polarizing because particularly here in, in the United States where trained to like these things that are, dare I say, hand-to-mouth eating, right? So you can just go in one after another. And I think with licorice, you really have to like sort of pace yourself and take your time with them because of those intense flavors. There were just a lot of other more approachable, easier to love ways to consume sugar competing for the American mouth share. And anyway, licorice wasn't really being cultivated the same way in America. And the end result is that licorice has never really been super popular in this country. But Beth says those types of intense and complex flavors are increasingly popular in the U.S. and licorice seems to be doing pretty well now. And I think bold flavors overall, like the American palate, no matter what food you're in, whether that's coffee or chocolate or, you know, savory or sweet, I think these bolder flavors are really appealing to folks. So I think this trend, it has done well for licorice. And I think... I think it's on an uptick as a result of that. But kind of surprisingly, there is such a thing as eating too much licorice. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. 
As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you're not hypertension, heart failure, you should avoid licorice like the plague. Remember, licorice used to be a medicine, and Michael Lee, who's a former doctor and professor of pharmacology, says licorice does have real physiological effects, effects on your body that go well beyond tasting nice. That's where it not only suppresses thirst, but it conserves sodium in the kidney, and that has its dangers, and licorice used in excess gives rise to hypertension. Usually, those people I've seen poisoned with licorice are eating three or four packs of Bassett's licorice all sorts or Pontefract cakes every day. Wait, he said poisoned? People have been poisoned by eating licorice? Yeah, I had two cases in two weeks when I was a physician at the Royal Infirmary here. And these two patients were admitted with paralysis of all four limbs and hypertension. And I immediately said, have you been eating a lot of licorice? And one lady was consuming four packs of licorice all sorts per day. And when we stopped licorice, the whole thing went away. I'm trying not to laugh because obviously this is serious, but also licorice poisoning? Well, we wondered how the patient got it down. She had a pack at breakfast, two packs at lunchtime and one pack in the evening for some four or five years. I mean, that is a lot. But to a licorice fan like Michael, it's not impossible to imagine. Once you've eaten two Pontefract cakes, you can think you will eat ten. So be guarded. Be guarded. For those of you like me who love licorice and had a momentary panic, don't worry. Licorice poisoning is not a common event. In my whole medical career, I've seen about ten cases in 30 to 40 years. I myself eat licorice all sorts. But I I enjoy them thoroughly, but I don't eat too much. But Michael does draw the line at some kinds of licorice. Licorice all sorts and Pontefract cakes are one thing. Salty licorice? That's something else altogether. Oh yes, well that's even worse, because combining salt with a salt retainer up goes your blood pressure faster. So the Scandinavians should ban salty licorice. We spoke to a Scandinavian who can tell you that you can basically take his salty licorice over his very dead body. I'm Jukka Annala. I'm from Helsinki, Finland, and I'm the chairman of the Finnish Salty Licorice Association. Salty licorice is a very strange thing, to be honest. And one of the ways it's weird is that the salty part is not normal table salt, sodium chloride. It's ammonium chloride. And 
ammonium chloride is a specific salt and it gives the particular saltiness, the aroma to salmiaki candies. The word salmiaki, which is how Finns say salty licorice, it actually comes from that salt, from ammonium chloride. Sal ammoniac is what it was called in the past, salmiaki. And ammonium chloride is a little more bitter and acidic than regular table salt. But so why in the world did anyone think to combine ammonium chloride with licorice in the first place? Ammonium chloride is traditionally used in medicine. It's used as an expectorant in cough medicine. Since both licorice and ammonium chloride were both being sold at the pharmacists to combat coughs, someone thought to combine them. And then somehow people like that taste. And the same way that George Dunhill turned his medicinal licorice pastels into England's first branded sweet, someone in Finland had the bright idea to sell these salmiaki lozenges and syrups as confections too. And today, salmiaki is basically the Finnish national candy. We asked Yuka why exactly he thinks salmiaki is so delicious. I should say it's um sinful combination of salt and sweet which makes it so exciting. I eat it regularly, I think uh, nearly daily. (laughs) Finns who move abroad can't survive without it. It's the one item nearly all Finns ask family members and friends to bring along when they visit. Smart Finns even make sure to bring salmiaki with them when they travel. When Yuka had to go to Russia for a month, he sacrificed spare socks and underpants to make sure he had enough salty licorice. My friend who was with me at the time, he said afterwards that um, your luggage uh, was nearly just salmiakki and nothing much else. Back in Finland, there's a tradition of taking hard salmiaki candies and using them to infuse vodka. But then in the 90s, a company had the brilliant idea to create their own official salmiaki flavored vodka. It became so popular in, in Finland that it was banned. There was a concern that young people especially would consume too much of this salmiaki vodka and would get alcohol poisoning. And so the minister in charge of alcohol decided to halt its sale, and all the bottles of salty licorice vodka were impounded in a big warehouse in Helsinki. And uh, the uh, state-owned alcohol company did not know what to do with this large amount of alcohol bottles of salmiaki vodka. First they thought, hey, let's just ship all that vodka over to places where Finns go on holiday, like Spain. But then government officials quickly realized that's not going to work. The Finns would just buy up all the salmiaki vodka in Spain and bring it home with them. Then they were going to just pour it out. But the authorities worried that adding that much salmiaki to the Helsinki sewer system might be problematic. Meanwhile, the vodka was just sitting there in this warehouse. And then eventually there was a new election in Finland, and the new minister noted that the bottles were still drinkable. So they just quietly restocked the shelves of the national liquor stores with salmiaki vodka. And Finns began drinking salmiaki vodka again. There hasn't been a rash of teenage alcohol poisoning cases, to Yuka's knowledge. But speaking of poisoning, we asked Yuka about Michael's concern that salt plus licorice is kind of a nightmare for your heart. Salt licorice candies are not recommended to people who suffer from uh, high blood pressure. So if you're among this risk group, you should avoid salmiaki, that's for sure. 
But on the other hand, if you have no such health issues, you should enjoy a lot. We've been focusing on Finland, but as we mentioned, this is a Nordic obsession in general. Well, Nordic countries plus one extra. It's popular in Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Norway, and the Netherlands. You could did admit that for those of us not native to the six Salmiaki countries, salty licorice can be a bit of an acquired taste. In fact, Finns like to feed it to visitors as a test of their metal. And they have, well, if not, in fact, thrown up, but they have um, nearly vomited because of the ungood combination, (laughs) the way they react to it. (laughs) That's a pretty intense reaction. What do they say about it? They describe it like uh, it's not eatable. It tastes like um, the juice in the socks or something as colorful because um, I can understand if if you have never ever tasted that uh, particular candy, it, it can be frightening. Well, I, for one, am not going to let a harmless piece of confectionery intimidate me. Fortunately, two very lovely listeners in Finland offered to send us each a care package of different types of salmiaki, and Yuka had some tasting advice for us. Well, you should have an open mind, an open schedule, a glass of water. (laughs) Why an open schedule? Uh, If you fall in love with salmiaki, then you should have time to... uh, to enjoy. Finally, we found an opening in our schedules. We each got our packages in the mail, and so we called Helsinki. Hi, this is Sarah Wade. I'm in Helsinki, Finland. This is Aaron Wade, and I am also in Helsinki, Finland, in the bedroom. First, some baseline context. Sarah and Aaron are American, and they've lived in Finland for about a year and a half now. Aaron grew up liking licorice. His parents grew anise in their yard, and he enjoyed that flavor. But Sarah was not a childhood fan of black licorice. So, how do they feel about salmiaki? Love at first bite? (laughs) Uh, Salmiaki is, um, I, I wouldn't say I love it. I like it in the forms where it's mixed with other things, like I love it in ice cream, and I like it in vodka. I'm not the person who goes out of my way to have samyaki. And Aaron, you used to be a licorice fan. Has this rekindled your feelings? (laughs) No, it hasn't. So the the saltiness to me, is it's too weird. Aaron and Sarah have each been subjected to the Finns' attempts to get them to puke when they eat salmiaki, but they're past that. They can handle it now. Now they're just like Finns themselves in that they enjoy giving salmiaki to other, more unsuspecting foreigners like us. Well, so talk us through what you got and why, what you sent us. I'm going to open this up and uh, spread it out on the couch here next to me. Sarah had picked out some classic salmiaki for us. We had the traditional apotique salmiaki powder, which people serve on ice cream. We had three different varieties of sisu salmiaki pastels, smoky, spicy, and salty. We had chocolate-coated licorice and a salmiaki bar, and this other brand called Turkish Pepper, which Sarah says a lot of people use to make homemade salmiaki vodka. Which Sarah encouraged us to do after we got off the phone. It was 10 a.m. in L.A., so that had to wait. But where to start with our very first experience of salmiaki? I don't know. I don't know what I want to taste. Well, I was going to have you taste the vodka first, but we should probably start with the Turkish Pepper. I have to chop everything because I am pregnant and I am not allowed to have that much. Oh, that's right. You have to be careful. (laughs) I do. So 
the limits are extremely unclear, but they compare it to drinking alcohol. They're like, you know, where you can have a glass of wine, you just can't binge and you can't do it regularly. So like, I can't binge on Salmi. Boo-hoo. <laughs> I have to say, first taste, this is totally delicious. Cynthia, you went in. I haven't had mine yet. Oh, I, I didn't know that. We were just like... opening. Open yours. I was oh, just... my God. Jesus, Cynthia. Okay. Hmm. All right, I'm having mine now. Pretty not bad. It tastes like kind of like salty goat and plenties. Mm-hmm. These Turkish pepper salmiaki, first we do have to say they weren't particularly spicy, despite their name and despite the flames on the package. But in terms of candy, they were like a hard sucking candy with a liquid center, which we were warned was slightly more intense. I'm going to bite and see what happens. Me too. Okay. Bit. Oh, yeah. Wow, mm. that's saltier. <laughs> it's saltier, but I kind of like oh, it. Oh, I totally like it. I love salt, mm-hmm. though, so, you know, I'm a good target audience. You got your salt, you got your sweep, you got your full day, right? After the full-on salt rush of that liquid center, I was ready for something a little more familiar and a little more sweet. Chocolate. Admittedly, wrapped around licorice, but still, chocolate. Let's do it. Okay, I'm ready. One, two, three. Mmm, okay. yum. Oh, that's amazing. That's delicious. That's like a no questions. I want another right now. It also doesn't have a really strong salmiaki taste, though. No, it's not very salty. This variation is very mild, I think. Yeah, no. We looked and this one had zero ammonium chloride. It was chocolate-coated licorice, not chocolate-coated salty licorice. Not actually salmiaki. Which is probably why we all really loved this one. Next, we tried this tiny, slightly chewy, but kind of hard candy. We would call it a pastel in England. And we had three different flavors. We decided to start with the salty version. Wow. Sorry, Nikki, I just put it right in my mouth. I didn't wait. Wow. (laughs) You guys are really making me want to try this, I have to say. It's just a bit of a shock to the senses. Oof. Oof. (laughs) My mouth is watering so intensely. That's full on. We're going to spare you our reactions to the smoky and spicy ones. Those were pretty gross. The smoky one tasted like menthol, like toothpaste. For reasons that are unclear. And the spicy one was not spicy. It wasn't even salty or licorice-y. There was nothing. Next, we had a bar of chewy salmiaki that was kind of like a panda bar if you've ever had one of those. It was salty, and I thought it was delicious. I feel like the salt finish is like the palate cleanser that makes you want to eat more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you have to go back to the sweet, so you have to eat it again. I am. I mean, I am having another bite, so there is possibly some truth to this theory. <laughs> so, Sarah, I'm definitely on the same page. I hate this, but then I'm, like, <laughs> pounding it, and I'm going to finish the bar. But we saved the best for last, the salmiaki powder. Well, I'm going to open it and just dip my finger in it and taste yeah, it. Yeah, I would recommend just pouring the whole thing right in your mouth. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron, now you're being Aaron. cruel. Really? We weren't bored yesterday. We knew to just take the tiniest taste. Wow. Wow, that's bitter. You can see my face right now. (laughs) It is. Whoa, that's intense. I think that definitely needs some ice cream or something to mellow it. My eyes are like wide open. Even on ice cream, it's like a bit of a punch if you don't mix it in. Sarah was upset we weren't getting the full salmiaki ice cream experience. But the experience we were getting was quite something. If we can source ice cream, I just don't know if I'll ever be ready to try that again. <laughs> I just stuck my finger in there and licked it. And oh, my Lord. As I Like my face just went into spasm. Yeah, it totally. Was just, was just... <laughs> oh, my God. 
So I thought I'd never go back to that powder, but I did try it on ice cream and mixed into plain yogurt, and it was surprisingly good. Still kind of weird, but good. And I have a hard time cutting myself off from those Turkish pepper salmiaki hard candies, so clearly the salty licorice thing has won me over. I am going to try the powder over ice cream, mainly because we promised Sarah. But my first priority was to finish the chocolate-covered licorice before Jeff discovered how good it tasted. Thanks so much this episode to Heather Copley of Farmer Copley's, Carol Wilson, author of Licorice, a Cookbook, Michael Lee, Beth Kimmerly, author of Candy, the Sweet History, and Yuka Anala. As usual, we have links to their books, articles, and organizations on our website, gastropod.com. Thanks also, and in particular, to our wonderful listeners, Sarah and Aaron Wade. Sarah actually wrote us an email more than a year ago, not long after they moved to Finland, suggesting we do an episode on licorice and offering to send us a box. Thank you so much, Sarah and Aaron. We cannot think of better people to try our first salmiaki with. And we'll be back in two weeks with a debate that has been raging literally for centuries, white or whole wheat. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.